Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to it's nice to be here. I uh, <clears throat> so I actually wore a nice shirt today. Uh, like normally, I'm up here with a Captain America shirt or a Flash shirt or something like that. I kind of like the Marvel universe and all the Star Wars stuff and that. Um, and you know, honestly, I, I will admit, I was um, I was tempted to wear something like that today. I was tempted just to wear it. And why? Because it's comfortable. I don't have to iron it. I just throw it on. Doesn't matter if it's wrinkled. Doesn't matter, right? Um, and what it is, and because it's it's basically maintenance free, it's very attractive. It's very seductive. So it's easy just to throw that stuff on and walk out the door. And you know, and sometimes you just want to wear what you want to wear, right? You just, you do, it doesn't matter. You know, a nice collared shirt to church, yeah. And you know, it's interesting, and I've done this a couple times. Um, I say, oh, Denise says, oh yeah, you're going to wear something nice? Yeah, I'll wear something nice. You know, meanwhile, I just, I just grab a t-shirt, just force a habit. And then, you know, in the middle of summer, I got a jacket done right up to your neck here as we're driving to church, so she can't see what I'm wearing. And then uh, you walk into the church, and off comes a jacket, and all of a sudden, her mouth is agape, and like, what are, you know, and I, I basically, I just want to see the reaction, right? Um, and so it's interesting to see that. I mean, I wouldn't suggest doing that on a regular basis, but, because uh, we still have to go home after um, and the thing is, we, we, you know, I kind of think, well, did I dishonor or did I betray her? So I didn't want her upset, right? There's no real malicious intent. You know, it's just, just seeing what kind of reaction we would get. And how mad could she be, right? I mean, honestly. So we're in church now, and I think, okay, this is going to be fun. So let's see, because probably nothing we said. So you see where I'm going with this sermon? You see where I'm, I'm going down this path? We're going to look at this stuff. So three questions I have for y'all, okay? Um, so has anybody asked uh, you, like has anybody asked you, or have you ever asked anybody else, have you dared them to do something knowing that it would embarrass or hurt someone else? Sure, absolutely, we all have. I, I have, I know I have. Um, so the second question, have we ever stretched the truth you know, we don't think it's a lie, but we're lying. We stretch the truth. You know, um, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Uh, meanwhile, you're not going to do it. It's just completely blatant. You're not going to do anything. Has anybody ever done that? Sure, that's fair. I'm, and I'm not, I'm not judging here. This isn't James. When I'm, I'm not James 4.12. I'm just saying, I'm just asking these questions. And the third one, have we ever had thoughts to set someone up for failure? You know, uh, there's all kinds of different examples. But have we ever thought, well, set someone up for failure, um, you know, by telling a complete lie to them or to someone else in a position of power, and then they come back and, and see what's going to happen with them? I think we've done these things before. They're not things we're proud of. They're not things that we should do. But these things have happened, okay? And we've, we have done certain things like this. Um, we, we don't see them as being destructive, but these actions end up building. It's like, it's, like, it's like just piling dirt. It just keeps getting bigger. The mound keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's three actions that we just kind of looked at through these questions and about wearing a t-shirt, because I like to use that as an example. I had a lot of nice comments about my shirt today. I said, that's going to fit right into the sermon. So the three things we look at, okay, I want to look at today are temptation, seduction, and betrayal. Okay. So these are, these are acts that we do. These are, these are things that we, that we actually do. Okay. And we do, sometimes we do this on a daily basis. We don't even know we're doing it because we're blinded by our own visions of personal gain. 
Okay, there's one thing. Or somehow we want to conform to society's norm for feel of embarrassment or ridicule or being ostracized or shoved off into a corner. Or sometimes people tell you, oh, it's our little voice. Saying, oh, it's okay. No one's going to know that you did this. Okay, it's only, but you don't worry about it. You're, no one's going to know. No one's going to possibly find out. Okay, um, and it's a, it's a sense of false comfort when we, when we do these things. So one example, uh, when I was looking at building a service, I was thinking, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to talk about? Um, and that illustrates these type of things is found in the book of Matthew. Um, and these three acts are specifically in Matthew 4, and it illustrates the depravity of these, okay? Um, and, but we're going to look at this, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at how these things have happened in there, we're going to look through the scripture, and then we're going to, we're going to figure out how to overcome or resist these things, okay? And it, so there is hope for all of us, every single one of us, okay? So we're going to look at these three lusts or acts, however you want to term them, and then these three actually include when we break these uh, when we break these temptation, seduction, and betrayal down. It looks at the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we're going to discuss those today, and I'm going to tie it all together. We're going to tear apart the scripture, and we're going to make sense of all this and how we resist this on a daily basis. So I would invite you to turn to your Bibles. If you brought your Bible with you, if not, there are a few Bibles, and we're going to look at uh, the Book of Matthew. And we're going to look at chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11, okay? Uh, in the Pew Bibles, I believe it's found on page 935. Um, I'll be using the NIV, but feel free to use whatever version you would like to use. So we're going to look at Matthew uh, chapter 4. So with this, Matthew 4, Jesus is tested in the wilderness, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him and said, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. So this is God's word. So the story of Christ's temptation does a few different things here. And we're going to look at these. We're going to look at these as a whole. So first... When we st- I want to break down the scripture and, and kind of look at this. So first, when we talk about turning the stones into bread, so what does Satan do? So Satan invites Jesus to turn away from God. And there's just a few different ways he does this. It shows that he tests Jesus' ability to resist his own hunger and push aside the boundaries to satisfy himself, his human satisfying nature, just, his, just our, our lust of that. And this is, a, this is the lust of the flesh, okay? Um, 
So when we look at this, Jesus, he's been in the desert for 40 days, uh, in the wilderness for 40 days, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute too. But he hasn't eaten anything. He's had no water. Um, you know, it's, it's been going for 40 days. And when we think about food and drink and sexual gratification, we can put this in these, these areas of combat that we are fighting on a, constantly, a, constant, a consistent basis. Now, there's nothing wrong with being hungry, there's nothing wrong with being thirsty, and there's nothing wrong with desiring your spouse, okay? These are God-given desires, okay? These are things within God, the context that are, are pure, okay? There's nothing wrong with them. I'm going to qualify this in a minute here. But when we see as Satan utilizes Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness or the desert uh, without food or water, it, what he's trying to do is essentially prove his sonship to God. He's trying to prove that, yes, you are the son of God, or you're trying to disprove that you are the son of God through a display of uh, power that, um, that show that his abilities are indeed God-given. He's trying to show that Christ is, he's trying to, if he tempts him with food because he knows he's hungry, he knows he's thirsty, and he has these abilities given through God, if he, if he bows down to that and, and falls victim to Satan's little temptations, then he is, he's not the Son of God. He's trying to, he's trying to disprove all this, right? So I want to take just a second, uh, because it is interesting to note the significance of when Jesus, uh, was in the desert, uh, or in some Bibles they use the term the wilderness. For 40 days. When we think about this and we look back through the Bible, just, just kind of, this will help put things in perspective of what he was going through and what the, what, how things transpired back then. So when the Bible shows the desert or the wilderness and what people are in there, it represents a place of preparation. Okay? It's a preparation for what God has planned next. Okay, we can see this, um, like in the significance of the number forty. You know, the forty days and the forty nights in, with Noah was in the ark waiting. What was he waiting for? For what God had planned next. Okay, uh, we see in Genesis twelve. Uh, the, sorry, we see uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai for forty days and forty nights with God, God inscribing the words of the covenant, waiting to see what he had next, what he was going to do next. These are places of preparation. This is time for preparation. And we also see the Israelites wanting the desert for 40 years uh, before getting to the promised land uh, because why? They were waiting to see what God had for them next. He had wanted to see what he had planned for them next. So the desert and or in the wilderness, this is a place of preparation because remember, Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist. Now he was led into the he was in the wilderness in the desert for 40 days and 40 days with no food, with no water, okay? And we can appreciate he was very hungry, he was very thirsty, and he was guided there to be tempted. Okay? And why was he tempted? So, this, sometimes we all have a hard time with this. So, God never tempts anyone to do evil. He does not. It's impossible. Okay? But He does use circumstances, as we see in Matthew 4, to test a person's character. This is one of the big things, was to test a person's character. And that is where, my friends, the reasons regarding food 
and drink and sexual gratification piece comes in. Because I said before, these are God-given desires. And they're generally benign. They are benign. It's, it's, it's fine to be hungry. It's fine to be thirsty. It's fine to desire your spouse. It's completely fine. Okay? But as we see, Satan tries to twist this just with food. He tries to twist the message. And it shows that we, when we desire these things, okay, through illegitimate or disobedient means, we fall victim to seductive suggestions to not only satisfy our desires, but we're doing these things in a Christ or in a God dishonoring way. Because if Christ would have took that bread, okay, and ate it, he completely dishonored his father, right? Because Satan is testing his sonship to see if he truly is. Because he keeps saying, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, prove this, do this, I want to see this, right? So that's, there's our first point, okay? Lust of the flesh. Second, let's look at jumping off of the temple. This looks at the lust of the eyes, okay? So this is an area of our lives that for most of us is dominated by emotion or and will to obtain worldly proof of our status and rank in society. So this lust becomes clear when Satan tries to seduce him into jumping off the temple, and he confuses Jesus, and he's trying to, sorry, he's trying to confuse Jesus, and he's challenging him, because he uses uh, the scripture, Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, uh, which states that, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So, there's a couple important facts when we look at how he's trying to twist the scripture. So, the first thing is, when we look at Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, we need to think about the significance of the temple. Like, what was the significance? Why would he bring him up to the temple? Okay. Um, when you look at the history involved, and you start reading through this, and look at, looking at measurements and things, the temple itself was about 300 feet from the ground to the very apex, to the pinnacle, to the tip of the temple. Okay, It was very significant because that was the place for the Jews. That was their place of worship. That was the ultimate place of worship. It's the most sacred place, Okay, the most sacred of sacred places, where they would worship God eternally, no matter what is going on. They had that temple, and they were, they were allowed within some restrictions to attend temple. So we can see the, the importance of the temple or the place of worship when we see Haggai 2 verse 7, which reiterates, which reiterates this. I just want to make note. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house, which is God's house, this house, okay, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This house is God's temple, the temple. So it was significant. So the holy temple did not only... Um, uh, like you have to think about this when you when you look at the Old Testament on how the temple was built. Like it was God given directions. Like it was the it was the pinnacle. It was the most important place. He talked about there's going to be this kind of curtain here. There's going to be this a bit of gold here. There's going to be this type of lampstands. It's going to be this weight. It's going to be this height. Okay. It was down to the last minute detail. Okay. And this is where his people would come to worship, where God's people would come to worship. And can you imagine standing there and seeing somebody jump off 300 feet and come down and just basically float down and land nice and steady on their feet? 
Like that would have made a big impact, right? On the people around him. But, but see, this is the thing. The way Satan kind of twists Psalm 91 is a blatant misuse of the scripture. So he uses the scripture, but he has a gross misunderstanding of it. Because when we look at the psalmist when they wrote this, okay, when Satan challenges him uh, with Psalm 91, verse 11 to 12, um, it shows that there is refuge for the faithful in times of trouble. That's what Psalm 91 addresses. It has been suggested that it was just to describe the entire nation of Israel, okay, itself, but there are underpinnings um, with that, or there's some, there's some messaging in there that it can be directed at a singular person, okay, just it's, it's singular as opposed to a plural. And what happens? So what does Jesus do? So what does he do when Satan challenges him to do this? He denounces the idea of testing God because it's a willful misuse of the passage. Okay, um, and how does he denounce him? He jumps back to the scripture. He runs right back to the scripture, and he looks at Deuteronomy six sixteen. It says, "Do not put your Lord God to the test." And we have to remember, Deuteronomy is essentially the rule book for the for the Jewish people, right? It's the ancient Jews. So, so the second fact. Sorry, I kind of talk about the temple here. Is that it's talking about testing God? So when we test God, we don't make deals with Him. Okay. It's an act of disobedience, first of all, and it shows a lack of trust in the creator of everything, okay? Now, we know that if Christ would have thrown himself from the temple, yeah, I mean, this would have produced a great display of power, and there would have given Jesus an enthusiastic following, but, but, this was not part of the Father's messianic plan. This was not part of the plan for the Messiah was to throw himself off the temple to show his power. It was not. That was not part of it. There were, there's a lot of tasks there among many, but two very important tasks that the Messiah needed to perform as written in the scripture. The first one was that he was to suffer for us. He was to take the burden of sin upon himself, nailed to a tree. Okay? Nailed to the cross. The second thing is, is that he was given the responsibility to provide a proclamation of the kingdom and the word of God to the people, far and wide. And that's why we are here today. Because he has spread that message. That message is spread through everybody, all the evangelists. He was talking about the kingdom of heaven. And again, when we see that the lust of the eyes is an area of our lives that looks at objects we desire, so like money, new cars, homes, our personal feeling, and this is all a result of emotion and will. And emotion and will are not inherently bad things. God gave those to us. But when it takes the focus off of driving glory where it needs to go, and there is only one person it goes to, okay, this becomes a big issue. Okay, we, we don't relish in uh, things. We relish in our, our lives and our dedication to Christ. Material objects, as well as emotion and will, uh, these feelings uh, be, can become the focus of our lives. And when we put our whole focus on possessions and recognition for ourselves, as opposed to faith and worship upon He who gave us life, we start going down a very slippery slope, a very steep slope. And at the end of the slope, there is nothing. And when I mean nothing, we are separated from God. We are separated from Christ. Because 
this results in darkness. Because we are worshiping something other than Him. Okay? There is no glory that's been given to worshiping items as opposed or money or vehicles or lusts, whatever the case may be. It's false worship. Plain and simple. <clears throat> when we look at this, it's the worshiping of false things. It's actually a worshiping of false gods. The actual biblical term for this is called polytheism. Poly just means number, multiple. Theism means theology. We are worshiping something other than him. Completely other than him. And when we think and hope upon only material and recognitional issues, as opposed to God and his glory through his son, Jesus Christ, we are in fact worshiping falsely. We can see that in the first book of Timothy, uh, chapter 6, verses 7 and seven to 10, can, this confirms this. And Paul tries to teach us, you know, that was years ago, but he's trying to teach the people at that time across the world, the Romans, and trying to teach us that we cannot love money and material and God in the same breath. It's impossible. It is impossible. And we see, and I'll just quote 1 Timothy, for we, were brought, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So, <clears throat> my friends here, like, you know, Satan is trying in vain. He's had, Jesus is starved, he's, he's dehydrated, he's dry, he's in a weakened state, his weakened human state. And he's trying to use his human emotion and his human wills that are God-given desires, but he's trying to twist them to be in a God-dishonoring manner. Okay? Instead of driving glory back to God where it is deserved, towards our Father. So the third item within Matthew 4 is where Satan says, Bow down, worship me, and here is the world. This is the pride of life. So one may think that there is nothing wrong with being proud. Being proud is an innate part of us. Okay, We like the feeling of pride when we accomplish a task. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking a pride in accomplishment. If you win an award, if you complete a marathon, you know, you're able to just get up for the day. There's nothing wrong with being proud of that. There's nothing wrong. But in the context of Matthew 4, we begin to see how Satan, he tries to twist things. Okay? He tries to trick Christ into giving in to these lusts. And everything else has failed. So now he's working on one of the most deep the most gratifying sensations, which is human pride. Pride, cometh before, pride will cometh before the fall. We've heard that before. Okay? But, he's, but the way Satan is delivering, he's twisting it to serve his own sick, depraved will. So he knew that when he offered these temptations to Jesus based on false assumptions, the more he offered, the better the deal would get. Oh, if you don't like this, well, let's move on to here. It's like a game show. So here we got door number one. Okay, it's a good deal. But you know what? If you don't like that or you refuse that, well, let's try door number two. So temptation number two. It's a little bit better, 
okay? And ah, but if you don't like that, or you, you don't want that one, or you say, no, I don't, I'm out. Okay, well, you know what? I got the best deal so far. This is the best one right here. So, let's recap. Satan tempted Christ through his hunger by the lust of the flesh. First one, bam, failed, did not work. So next, what did he do? He tempted Christ through his position and will of worldly status by the lust of the flesh. What happened? Bam, failed, did not work. So now what does he do? He draws his last card. He has one card left, one left, and he knows this. And he tries to prove that the drive to be the son of God who will reign forever cannot put a limit or a price or a sacrifice too large to attain position of the ruler of the world. Okay? He's trying to tell him it's not that big of a deal. It's not that high of a limit. Okay? It's not that big of a price. The sacrifice is small. You just have to get down on one knee. That's it. Just get down on one knee and say, hey, I'll worship you. Okay? And we see this is a last, it's a futile, like futile attempt that he makes. You know, taking him to the highest mountain and says, I will give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. I mean, in a weak and dehydrated state, you know, exhausted, no sleep, that sort of thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's tough, but we have to remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about Christ, okay? Um, and to him, this is a joke, okay? So, Satan's all out of cards. It's over. The game is over. And how did Jesus end this game? How did he respond? So, he used the scripture. Now, depending on the Bible you use, whatever version you have with you today, there's some differences in the words Jesus used. So the NIV says, away from me, Satan. The ESV says, be gone, Satan. The King James Version says, get thee hence, Satan. And the NASB, that's the New American Standard Bible, says, go, Satan. Okay, so these terms all mean the same thing. They're synonymous. It's basically, see ya, bye-bye ya. Time to leave. Not having any of this. It's over. Okay? And what does he use? He goes back to the scripture. Right back to the scripture. Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Period. So he rebukes Satan. He uses the scriptures. This is what he uses. This is his weapon. This is his armor. Okay? Plain and simple. He stopped him in his tracks. Every single offer he made. He, he, he stopped it. There was a roadblock put up. Okay? And it shows, and this confirms, that he is indeed the Son of God. And that his faith is unwavered because he is, because of all this. <clears throat> so a lot there, guys. A lot there in Matthew 4. So how do we apply this to our lives? Okay? What does Matthew 4 teach us? What does it teach us? There is hope for us all. There is hope for us all in resisting temptation and seduction and resisting betrayal to do things that we shouldn't. So God always provides a way out. He always provides an exit route. There's always an escape hatch. Okay, there's always. And we need to look for look to the scripture to see. And we see in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 it states, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. He is not going to leave us stranded. The Bible says that. And what does he do to provide us a way out? 
a really good uh, theologian, Harold Hunter from Trinity Seminary, states there's three things that we need to do and what God provides us in order to look at this. First of all, we need to know, we need to recognize, and we need to yield. So to know is realizing, first of all, that Jesus paid that price for our sins. He took everything to the cross with his entire life, with his human life that God gave him. He took it to the cross, his spilled blood on Calvary, all the sins of the past, present, and future to the cross. So we need to know that. We need to know that. We need to know that. And we see in Romans 6, verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Christ took all our sins, past, present, future, upon himself. And when we have went through the waters of baptism, our old self is washed away. It is dead. We are reborn. That old person is dead. It's gone. Your sin is gone. It's washed away. We are fresh and we're new. The next ability is we, God gives us the ability to recognize. And when I mean recognize... When we're looking, when we're tempted by things, what's laid out in front of us, what is the seduction or the betrayal? What is going on here? And we need to determine, we need to look at this and go, if I make this choice, what is going to happen? We need to see the results of this. Like It's sort of like when you're driving, you sense a problem, you identify the problem, you make a decision on it, and then you execute it as something to get out of the way. It's called SIPTI. Okay? They teach you that in in in. Uh, not aggressive driving, uh, reactive driving, okay? Protective driving. So this is also justified. We look at Romans 6, verse 11. It says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Jesus Christ. Our old self is gone, okay? Sin is now dead to us and no longer has dominion over us at all. We are alive in Christ because of his sacrifice. When we recognize this and when we're faced with these temptations, we need, uh, and we have these opportunities that would afford us to uh, obey, betray Christ. We need to recognize we need to stop this because this is, like I said, it's a hill. You're just throwing dirt. The pile is getting bigger. The pile is getting bigger and we're underneath it. Okay? So we have to make these choices for ourselves. But we also have to realize there's consequences for choices. There are consequences for these things. Okay? And we have to, we have to look at that. The third God-given ability that, he is given, that we have is to yield. And this is now having the strength to act upon what we know Christ did for us. And we've recognized for ourselves the temptation. And we have to, we have to yield and overcome these temptations. These things that are placed in front of us. We have to yield, not yielding like, oh, I'm just going to give up and I'm going to give in. No, we need to yield to Christ. We need to yield to God's glory and we need to push it back to him. Okay, and we need to put all our trust and put all our weight and our concerns on his shoulders. We need to yield to God because he will protect us. It is his and it's his through his power and mercy. Again, Romans 6, Romans has a lot of it. Romans 6 verse 13 says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So that means resist, resist, resist. We put our, we cast our cares on his shoulders. Sometimes, he, he, like I say before you, hear me pray and say, he'll, he'll give us, he'll bend us, but he won't break us. But he won't break us because we cast all our wills on him. Sometimes the weight of the world is pretty heavy, right? We have some hard things to endure. So, but, 
driving glory back to God and having Him take the weight of our sin and our burden, that is what we need to do. So we need to we need to uh, know, we need to recognize, and we need to yield. And that will help us with resisting temptation, seduction, and betrayal. Let's pray.